this week on The Perfect Scam. He got a text that stated, are you trying to make a $339 purchase in a, at a Target in Georgia? Answer yes or no. And he wrote back no. I was full of relief because I thought, okay, thank God. They've canceled the card charge. My cards are okay. Let's just get back to normal and caring for the dogs and feeding the kids and all of that stuff. I had that sort of nagging at me, but not like something bad has happened, but I want to make sure that this, this is all okay. So I called the Bank of America number and I said, what's going on with this? And she was like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And then my stomach just dropped. Welcome back to The Perfect Scam. I'm your host, Bob Sullivan. Imagine stealing from a dog shelter. And not just any shelter, but a hospice shelter where a family takes care of seriously ill animals who have only a few months or even just a few weeks to live. We know criminals who operate scams can do some pretty despicable things, but today's story might represent a new low. And it's important because it's about a crime that the Federal Trade Commission says has increased 20-fold, 20-fold, in just the past couple of years. It all starts with a text message that looks like it comes from your bank. Odds are many of you have even received one of those. But wait until you hear what happens when one of these texts is received by the nonprofit Old Dogs Go to Helen. Brady is one of my favorites. He is uh, a little like black labish mix. He's 13. We just found out that he has Cushing's and a huge and large liver and we've started him on this very special meds and he's doing so much better than he was. And he came from a an elderly person who could no longer care for him because she had all kinds of health issues and the family couldn't take him. So he ended up here and he is just the sweetest little most grateful guy. We have Thelma who's completely blind. We have Myrna who had all of her teeth removed so we call her no jaw myrna and she walks around and just pees every five to ten minutes but she's the happiest little nugget we have i mean i could go on for hours talking about all i'm enjoying this so yeah (laughs) so yeah they're all you know we have brandy brandy is a only two but she has something called cerebral hyperplasia which means that her her brain did not develop properly when she was a puppy it's kind of like cerebral palsy for people and so she has all kinds of strange movements she's handicapped she's in a wheelchair we call her hospice she's only two But when they have these kinds of disabilities, you're constantly weighing quality of life for them. But she has come so far since being with us. We've started her on PT and laser therapy, and she's just the happiest little nugget we have. So we've got a whole different gang of, you know, misfits, like, but they're amazing. That's Helen St. Pierre, who founded and runs Old Dogs Go to Helen in New Hampshire with her husband. She also has a day job as an animal trainer, but her labor of love is taking in very sick dogs and giving them a comfortable ending to their lives. My husband and I are both extreme animal lovers, but it was my, I lost my, just like you did, I lost my senior dog of 15 and the house just did not feel the same without my senior dog around. And I, because like I said, because of my job, I have so many connections with rescues and shelters a shelter had reached out and said hey helen you know do you know anybody we've got this very old dog uh very abused he needs a lot of medical care but we he's not doing well in the shelter that anyone that might want him and i immediately was just like a knee-jerk reaction i said he needs to come here 
And once my husband and I went through this process with a couple of hospice dogs, we realized that it was something that we not only did we love it, but we loved what it was teaching our kids about compassion and about, you know, selflessness and teaching them about quality of life and appreciating every single moment and also quality of death and and how to deal with feelings and talk about it. And it's, it's, it's given us a lot of gifts. And so it's called Old Dogs Go to Helen. Old Dogs Go to Helen. Yes. So it's a 501c3. It's a nonprofit and it is a side labor of love. Let's just put it that our passion project that my husband and I do on top of my regular day-to-day business of dog training and behavior. That's all very, very beautiful. You, you mentioned children. So you have a very full house. Yes, we have a very full house. It is controlled chaos. We have a five-year-old and my 13-year-old. And they both are very active members with the sanctuary and the farm. And they they love and take care of all of this just like just like we do. Helen and her husband started this project six years ago. And nowadays, you are likely to find 10 or 15 dogs at her home at any time, roaming free in a part of the house she calls the sanctuary. So your house is full of aging sweet dogs who have nowhere else to go and you give them a dignified last few years of life not usually years honestly most of our dogs have months left years is 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 really great we have a couple that have been here for about a year but the average length of stay for the dogs that come to us are around three to six months i have to say almost anyone i know who's ever been in um, any kind of dog related field has dreamed about moving to New Hampshire, buying a piece of property and inviting all the old dogs they can find to live with them. So you are living a lot of people's dream, it seems like. <laughs> it it can feel that way for a lot of people until they come and they have to do it every day because it's, it's quite a, like I said, it is a labor of love. It is cleaning up, you know, pee and poop and making sure that everybody gets their medicine and their eyes, do, you know, it's, it's caring for the elderly and the infirm and the you know, the dying. So it's it's certainly not all cuddles and sweetness that a lot of people think about until they come and they see what it is. I think it would be worthwhile telling people, giving them just a little bit of a flavor of how challenging it can be if they've never cared for an elder dog, just making sure they have all their medicines and whatnot. I mean, it's hard enough doing it for one dog. I can't imagine doing it for 15. Yes, it's a lot of work. You know, once you get into the the groove of it, you, it, for me, it doesn't feel like the amount of, it, it's a really funny thing, thing because, you know, when you, when I'm doing it, my husband and I are doing it, we just have a, we have a system, we have a routine, we know what to do. We pull up the pee pads that are soiled, we replace them. We make sure, you know, these dogs have their medicines and, and he does their meds and I do their meds and we, we sort of get the routine. The reality comes when I have to train somebody <laughs> on how to do that. Like, let's say we have to go away for an evening to, you know, go do something for the nonprofit or for the business. And I have to have a volunteer go through like this is how you just clean the space that's when i realized like the, one of the reasons that it doesn't feel like work at this point is because we're so conditioned at how to do it but it is it's a it's a quite a process to make sure that the place stays clean and sanitary and you know a, a loving space for for them uh, i'm imagining like you do sometimes uh, feeding time in the morning where you line up the five dogs and put five bowls of food in front of them and you do it in the right order of dominance or whatnot. Um, is it sort of like that when you're giving out medicine in the morning? 
Uh, kind of. I mean, we sort of divvy it up by there's there's pill medicine and then there is physical like medicine in terms of some dogs need their pills for pain and, and that sort of thing. And then some dogs need ear flush, eye flush. They need laser therapy. They need all of those kinds of things that keep them physically feeling better as well. So we ha- kind of have to divide it up on who needs what and when. Honestly, my brain is exploding. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, you know, again, like doing eye flush on one dog is kind of, I, I used to have a golden retriever who just had crazy sensitive ears and it would yes. take three of us at the vet's office to try to yes. clean his ears out. So, oh my God. Yes, it's it's like I said, but once you get the system, once, and especially if you have a husband like mine, who's like, all right, I'll hold, you do this, da, da, mm. and we just sort of go down the line, it can become a very well-oiled machine, but it it, it it's eye-opening when I have somebody that I said, look, I'm going to show you how we do this. <laughs> and, you know, an hour in, I'm like, all right, we've done two dogs. <laughs> and now we have to keep going down that line. So yes, it's quite, it's quite a labor of love, like I said. A labor of love that leads often to heartache. We say goodbye to dogs. We lost one two days ago. We've said goodbye to three so far this week. We lose dogs all the time, but the strength that we find is that we know that these dogs have not passed in a shelter cold and alone. They haven't gone through, you know, the massive amount of stress that some elderly dogs that are treated as either disposable or families can't take them or they just get too sick. They haven't gone through that. So it is difficult work, but the gifts that they give us outweigh the, the, the heartache, I guess we could say. And it's more than that. Elder dogs bring with them very, very special qualities that, well, you might not know about until you take care of one. There is something also magical and wonderful about a peaceful older animal in the house, isn't there? Yes. You know, part of my work now in my in my business, you know, they both sort of bleed into each other, is trying to promote and explain to people that, you know, listen, puppies are wonderful. I love puppies and I love my young dogs, but there is something absolutely, it's hard to put it verbally what it is, but it's like magic about having an old, wise dog laying at your feet or by your side on the couch and especially around your kids and just having that presence, they, they bring something to the table. And so I try very hard now to advocate because I don't, I do this work because I have to, not everybody goes into the shelter and says, give me the oldest, sickest, stinkiest dog that you have. But you know, if more people did that, there would be a lot less of dogs that need this help. And they would also, people would realize just how much caring for our elderly, whether it's humans or animals, is a community effort. And we need to be able to put that that effort back into some of these dogs. So I was afraid of dogs. Um, and, uh, but I had been, I, I went through a breakup and kind of on a whim went to an organization that convinced me to take an older dog probably all this happened kind of quickly so I didn't have time to think about it which is often the best way right um, <laughs> yes yeah and this this guy his name is Bo and all he did for about 18 months was just lay at my feet wherever I was in the house and it, and it was the most beautiful thing yep it, they are they are by far the best best friends it, it, right off the bat, right? You know, that's what I say to people is puppies are fantastic, but you've got a good two to three years of heavy work ahead of you to 
teach and mold and and help that dog grow up to be your best friend, which they ultimately will. But if you want to bring home an animal that is just going to be so grateful and happy and immediately just become your best friend, you need to get a senior dog. And you know what what I hear all the time with kickback is, well, he won't live that long. And it's like you you need to put yourself aside there and think about what you're going to be giving this dog. So that's that's kind of the way that we look at it, too. So as we said, it's a labor of love, but it's also a very expensive one. There might be some people who don't know this. So um, how frequently do your dogs need medical care that costs multiple thousands of dollars? We spend an average of fifteen to two thousand, fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a week in medical care um, because we have constant dogs coming in. So we just took in two dogs this week: uh, Lamb Chop and Marley. Marley's sixteen. She has undergone severe cruelty. She is almost completely bald. She was brought in through protective custody through the SPCA, but they're not going to be able to adopt her out because of all her medical and her age. So she's come to us. She needs a full workup, skin treatment eye treatment, ear treatment. She's got lumps and bumps that we need to biopsy and make sure, you know, if she has cancer, what does it look like? That kind of thing. So that's hundreds right there on top of the dogs that we have to say goodbye to. A, a humane euthanasia with private cremation now is around 400 to $500. You know, so that's an average cost for us per week is 1500 to 2000 just in medical care, not talking about supplies like pee pads, cleaning, food, you know, all of that stuff that just, it all adds up. So that's why our, our monthly costs, just with no emergencies, is usually around $10,000 a month. Fortunately, generous donors help out with the expenses at Old Dogs Go to Helen. And Helen has a special bank account for the nonprofit where she tries to keep a balance of about a month's worth of expenses, about $10,000, so she can always keep up with the steady stream of veterinarian visits. But one day, into this well-oiled menagerie, disaster strikes. My husband, Jake, was actually with the sanctuary, and I was in the main house, which the sanctuary is is part of the main house, but it's a whole separate space because then we're not walking through pee and poop. They have their whole area. So he got a text that stated, are you trying to use this card, ending in the four digits of the card, um, to make a $339 purchase in a, at a Target in Georgia? Answer yes or no. Typical text. We've gotten these all the time. And he wrote back no. And it came from the B of A text, like the six digit thing. So immediately when he wrote back no, he got a phone call. And uh, the phone call came in and said, Mark from Bank of America, I'm calling you from fraud department. We have an unusual or suspect uh, purchase that looks like it's trying to be made on this card. Are you trying to make that purchase? And my husband said, no, absolutely not. And he said, okay, are you also trying to withdraw uh, $9,500 from this account, which is the our old dogs go to Helen account. He said, no, we're absolutely not trying to withdraw money from that old dogs account. And he said, okay, well, we're going to need to freeze everything. Do you have your information in front of you? And he said, no, I am not the banking person. This is my wife's <laughs> department. You know, we need to, we need to get her on the phone. And he said, oh, okay, is this her number? Which he he had my phone number, the, her name, Bun, and he said, yep, that's her. He said, okay, um, I'm going to hang up with you and I will contact your wife. Why don't you go tell her what's going on? So Jake rushes through the house to give Helen the lowdown. 
But before he can even finish the story... My phone rings and it comes up as our our Bank of America branch, which is a local number, but it says Bank of America. And I deal with them quite frequently with our nonprofit stuff and everything. I picked up. He said, yep, this is Mark from Fraud. I just spoke to your husband. There's been a attempted charge on this card ending in one is what it was. And they're trying to spend $339 at Target in Georgia. Do you want that? You know, and he said, that's not you. And I said, absolutely not. Please cancel everything. And he said, okay, we're going through the process right now. You're going to have to stay with me on the phone. We're going to cancel all your accounts and make sure that we can, you know, cancel your cards, not cancel the accounts, cancel your cards. And I said, yes, that's fine. And he said, there's also this, someone's trying to withdraw $9,500 from this account. And the that account was our old dogs go to Helen. But what's important about that account is that account, it was our savings version of the nonprofit. So something that's very important when you have a nonprofit is to have at least a month's worth of your expenses put aside for your rainy day. We rely completely on donations in order to function. So if we were to get a month of very, very slow donations, we need to always have what we use potentially on medications, on vet visits, on supplies for the dogs. And so there's there was literally $10,000 in that account and they were trying to access $9,500 of it. And I said, absolutely not. He said, okay, <clears throat> I'm going to send you a six digit code <clears throat> to verify your identity to get into your Bank of America account. I need you to read back that that number to me, which again, I've banked with Bank of America for 25 years. This is very standard procedure to me. So the text comes in on my phone. I read him that number. He said, okay, great. Can you also now, while I'm on the phone with you, so I have, I'm, I have access to your account, can you also log on to your account? I said, absolutely, I'll log on now. And he said, okay, can you see your old dogs go to Helen savings account. And I said, yes, I can see that. He said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the, the funds in that account and I'm going to put it into a separate Bank of America account. I want you to look at where I'm putting it. He said, go to transfers. I said, absolutely, go to transfers. I clicked on transfers. I said, transfer to a Bank of America account. He said, do you see that? I've just added this in for you. It's a, a, an advanced safety account. And I said, yes, that's great. He said, okay, I'm gonna send you another six digit code. It's all happening so fast, and Helen is grateful the bank has spotted the fraud, but still she wants to double-check with a second person about everything she's doing. So? At that point, I was like, well, hold on a second. I said, can I just, before I do this, can I talk to somebody? Do you have a supervisor that I can talk to because I'm just really stressed out? And he said, absolutely, please hold. Let me get my supervisor on for you. The hold music was the same hold music I always listen to. <laughs> Another guy comes on the phone. I did not. He didn't give me his name, but I didn't ask for it. And he said, yep, this, I'm the supervisor here at the fraud department. This is the way that we handle these kinds of things at this point. We don't want them to have any access to your accounts anymore. So we're going to put this here. And then everything's been canceled. And by 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, it was a Friday at 2 o'clock, you will, you'll be able to move that back into that account, but everything will be safe. And I said, great, okay. He said, can you read that six-digit code back to me? I said, yep, here's the code. He said, refresh it. Can you see that that transfer has been made? I said, yes, it looks like it, it's it's gone. I couldn't see it in the account. He said, thank you very much. We'll be calling you at 9 a.m. when the branch opens tomorrow morning and we'll make sure you're all squared away. Do you have any questions? And I said, no, that sounds great. Thank you so much. I mean, I was like, Bob, I was so grateful, right? Because I was like, thank you. You've just saved me from losing all this money. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, my husband was there the whole time. Like we were in front of the computer making sure. Of it. And so we hung up and I was like, wow, thank God. You know, our cards are canceled. Harold, thank God they saved us. Like, wow, that was great. But Helen goes to bed that night, not feeling completely settled. Like I said, I have all my accounts with Bank of America. So I'm like, cancel, 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 like cancel everything. And so after I got off the phone with them, you know, you just, after a phone call like that, I was like full of relief because I thought, okay, thank God, no one's moving, no one's taking anything. They've canceled the credit or the, the card charge in, in Georgia. My cards are okay. Let's just get back to normal and caring for the dogs and feeding the kids and all of that stuff. But in the back of my mind, I was like, you know, nine o'clock tomorrow, we'll get that money back. Like everything is safe. So I had that sort of nagging at me, but not nagging at me like something bad has happened, but I want to make sure that this this is all okay. And then again, I went back, I logged back online later that day just to see, you know, I was checking, making sure nothing else had come out or anything. And I couldn't see that, that money anymore, but I was like, nope, nine o'clock tomorrow morning. And when like literally 925 the next morning when no one had called me, that was when I started to get a little bit panicky. A little bit panicky. And it isn't long before that panicky feeling turns into real panic. Well, 9.25 came the following day at at a.m. on Saturday, and I hadn't gotten a call yet. And I was like, well, this is weird. So I called the number, the Bank of America number, and I said, hey, it's Helen. You know, what's going on with this? And she was like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And then my stomach just in like dropped, you know, because she said, oh no, this, um, this might be a scam. This might be a scam. So I immediately then called the Bank of America fraud department and I told them what had happened. And of course, you know, when you call a bank on a Saturday at this point, which is why these people do this to you on a Friday, because mm. no one really available the fraud department was like, well, this wasn't fraud. This was a scam. You you gave them that PIN number. So you actively gave them all this access. So this really isn't our department. We can't help you. We can't help you, she remembers being told. It wasn't a Bank of America fraud employee on the phone the day before. It was a criminal. The six-digit code he asked for wasn't to verify her account. It was to bypass her two-factor security so the criminal could access her money. And that safety account all the money was transferred into, that was really an account the criminals controlled. Bottom line, all $9,500, everything she had in the bank to care for the animals at Old Dogs Go to Helen, it has all been stolen. And I was beside myself, so I drove into the Bank of America department. I went in in person. Thank God they were open. And the the in-person people were fantastic. They actually started the report. I called Concord Police Department because my bank was in Concord. I filed a police report. I filed an FBI report. The bank submitted everything to show. We showed them the text message. I showed them that at that point, they still had, if you went on to my Bank of America and you went into my Bank of America accounts, you could still see that advance safety account, which is a Bank of America. Some, whoever did this, went into my online, created, linked their Bank of America account somehow and was able to pull that money into that. You could still see all of it. And so we sent it all over. This was on June 10th. And five days later, Bank of America said, no, we're not giving you a dime back because you gave them access by giving them that six-digit pin, which we then fought and fought. And it's been so, but, but 
that is the long story I won't get into, but that's how we lost that money. The long story is that banking rules which protect consumers from electronic hacking thefts have some gray areas. Right now, banks argue that when consumers are manipulated into helping criminals steal money, they sometimes consider that an authorized transaction. So they are not required by law to provide a refund of the stolen money. We've done stories about this before, particularly around common Zelle scams. First thing I did was I got a letter from them stating that because the activity, I forget what the verbiage exactly was, but basically the activity was consistent with transfers I had made in the past. And it was because I had logged into my own bank bank that because I had, this was also part of it that I also learned is that because they had me also log in, right? So when the people called me and they were logging in and I got that verification code and I also logged in, the way that the when the bank goes back and looks at it, it looks like I was the one doing the transferring, if that makes sense. Like that's yeah. so, so this that is was an authorized a, a transfer. Exactly. Yeah. But when you hear Helen describe what happened to her, it's hard to see how she authorized the transfer. Yes. And so that's that's what was really upsetting to me, because when I had that conversation with the, the first conversation, he said, OK, I need to verify your identity and your account. What's your name? I said, Helen, you know, blah, blah. And I gave him all this stuff. And he said, okay, I'm going to send you a six digit pin. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, with all due respect, you know, how can you say to me that what I, what I did yesterday was wrong when you are literally putting me through the exact same paces that these people did to me yesterday and, and telling me that I was wrong in giving them that information, but you're asking for the same information. Helen appealed the bank's refusal to return the stolen money. That didn't go well either. I then went back into the bank and was in tears and said, we need to resubmit it. And they submitted an appeal. That took 40 days only for them to then deny it again. I just last week got another denial. There's this area where the banks like to say, well, you actively gave someone an access code versus... Um, a criminal taking it and, and you know, we're really splitting hairs there. Right. It, that's that's how I felt when especially when dealing with the, the fraud department saying to me, well, this isn't fraud. This is a scam. But if your system is so easily replicated that a longtime, extremely loyal customer is that easily manipulated into believing that that's, that your system is is safe and then giving that information away it it doesn't feel fair that then we are penalized for that are you 55 plus there are many ways your community could use your help as an americorps seniors volunteer you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child tutoring students joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today. Those first fraudulent texts, they seemed so real. The follow-up phone call from the bank might sound plausible, but in reality, 
Most times, a human from the bank won't call at a time like this. You'll get automated instructions for disputing a charge. In any case, remember, when you get a call that you don't expect from the bank or any other company, you should always hang up and call the number on the company's website or on the back of your credit card. They texted his phone number first because the card, the the phishing text, so to speak, Mm -hmm. that they did was on his debit card ending in one, which is a Bank of America card. So when that text came through stating, are you trying to make this purchase? And one answer yes or no, that was to Jake's personal Bank of America account card. And the text had the last four digits of that debit card or something, right? One so, nine, which is his Bank of America debit card. So somehow, thing number one, they, they knew your husband's phone number and they, they knew at least part of his debit card number, right? Yes. And it came through as a Bank of America text. When he hangs up with them and they call you, did he give them your phone number? They knew my number. They but, said, okay, but, it's your wife, Helen, okay. Elizabeth, you know. And so they, they're saying too, they, they knew enough, at least a few digits of your debit card they knew his phone number and they knew your phone number and i guess yep. they did they know your name they knew my full name yep but yeah. they asked me to verify it just like bank sure, of america sure. does of course there's been so many data breaches criminals can get personal information like the last four of an account number or a phone number pretty quickly perfect scam listeners know we try to help people understand what it's like to be the victim of a scam It is understandable that there's some human impulse to say, well, I wouldn't have done that. Why would he or she respond that way? But what happened to Helen is a great example of why it's unhelpful to think that way, because circumstances matter a lot. Let's take you back to the morning that first scam text arrived. And I'm trying to picture, you know, how busy a morning it was when this text came in, because I always like to stress to people, you know, you're listening right now to a podcast about scams, so your brain is focused on crime, right? But most people, this happens when there's like a baby in one arm, another baby in a hand, you're walking out of a grocery store and your phone is pressed against your neck with your shoulder and you get a message and you don't have, you just want to do whatever you have to to get out of the situation <laughs> to stop the screaming kid, right? So what 100%. was the scene like when this all happened? Well, Jake was at the sanctuary and I was in the house with the main kids and taking care of everybody and answering emails and just doing, you know, our round the clock stuff. We were just sort of functioning. And so, yeah, it, it, it you're completely and totally right. You know, you're not, I'm not waiting around going, I wonder if I'm going to get scammed today. But when you have a phone call like that, you know, a 25 minute phone call, 20, 25 minute phone call with the bank where you're canceling everything and you're going through all this process, people don't realize, especially for us, like Jake and I have very, very little extra time for anything like that, if that makes sense. Like, you know, a 20 minute call has now depreciated our availability to do X, Y, Z. So let me ask this question. How many dogs are you petting? During a phone call like this, <laughs> uh, probably just one or two. Where I think we're on the bed. Uh, well, because we went up that we, you know, we when we have to make an important phone call, like right now, you know, our bedroom, our main bedroom, it's like our solace space. It's like my bunker. I go in here because I know <laughs> that I have. Uh, at that point, I'm not going to deal with some little old dog hacking, coughing next to me. I used to try to do phone calls and stuff in the sanctuary, but 
it would just sound like, you know, because you'd have a dog go like, <laughs> you know, right in the back. And people are like, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, no, no, it's fine. It's just Wesley. As all of this is happening, as the appeals are getting denied, Helen has a problem. The medical bills for the hospice dogs sure haven't stopped. Explain to people what that feels like when suddenly, you know, the whole world has shifted and you start to realize, oh, no, I, I, this, this incredibly important money, this money I take care of old dogs with is gone. Um, you just feel you just feel sick, you know. You feel like sick, and it's a mixture of complete and total anger and sadness with a with also this feeling of extreme embarrassment and shame, because you think, was I that dumb? Well, like was I that stupid that I? How could I? But you just, so the, it's this, it's a whole wave. There's no, it's not, it's a massive wave of different emotions that you're riding, but none of them are good. <laughs> so it's, it's all this massive adrenaline cortisol dump that you get of just, I don't know what has happened, but now everything is upside down and, and I need to see if I can fix it. And the worst part of that process is when you go to talk to somebody to try to help, to have them help you fix it, and you are then met with, well, you messed up. And that was the worst feeling, the way that I was treated by Bank of America when this happened. And I want people to understand there were real consequences to this, right? I mean, this was yeah. your one-month emergency fund, and it was just suddenly gone, right? Yeah, I mean, we got donation. We, you know, we got um, a ton of donations to help ease that, right? So we, when we put it out publicly, people stepped up and they helped us, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. However, what people have to understand is that that flushing that back in from those people means that those people now can't they there's only so much to go around for nonprofits so when they flush us back in from that scam that means that if we had an emergency surgery for a dog or a severe case of neglect or something that we have to step up for that happens all the time that costs thousands of dollars we have to reach even further to get that funding right because that those that thousand $10,000 had to be replenished through our community in that way. And so it's, it's major consequence. You know, we, we, we don't like, we don't, we don't ask for money. Like, we're not like, Hey, help us, help us, help us. We, we do our best. We, we take our donations and we ask for it when we need it. But that really drained a lot of our, you know, local community reach for that. It can only go to the well so many times, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Especially in a in a short period of time, right? When you do this day after day after day, you you can't be asking for thousands to help you every single day. There are some rescues that do that, but we're not a huge facility or shelter. Like we we're a small, privately done, you know, family that's doing this. So it's it's not easy to access that stuff. The fact that criminals stole this money from you really does put the care of an elderly animal at risk, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, just as it would if you take it from any anybody that has, you know, that's trying to do good long term for animals or people or anything. Yeah, it absolutely. It literally takes the money from the or the the food out of those dogs' mouths. That's that's what it does, you know, and. 
someone said recently, they're like, oh, you're not going to have to close. I'm like, no, we will take out four credit cards if we needed to. Like that's, this is what, before we were a 501c3, Jake and I were doing all of this on our own. We would rate, we would just work extra hard or Jake would do a extra job or we would put it on a credit card, but we rely now because we have so many dogs, we literally rely on those donations. So yes, it's taking money out, taking food out of their mouths. This kind of crime, getting a text that looks like it's from the bank, followed by a call that impersonates a bank fraud department, is now called a bank copycat fraud. This crime is skyrocketing, says the Federal Trade Commission. The agency recently issued a report about it. Consumers lost $330 million in 2022 to text message scams. And the item that we're talking about today copycat bank fraud was the top text message scam reported in that year. Reports about fake text message, uh, text messages impersonating banks have been up nearly 20-fold since 2019. I mean, 20-fold. I, I don't remember anyone ex- telling me about a crime that's up 20-fold in just a couple of years. That sounds remarkable. Yes, it's very interesting. That's Sophia Siddiqui, an FTC lawyer who talked with us about the crime and the report. She's been working in federal law enforcement for a couple of decades, first at the Justice Department and now at the FTC. Can I just get you to, I mean, it's it's terrible when anyone has money stolen from them, but a, an organization that takes care of dogs who are dying, that's just seems like a next level horrible kind of crime to me. Oh, I mean, this was a, this is a horrible story. They're obviously this nonprofit takes care of senior dogs in hospice. Bank copycat frauds work, in part, because texting is cheap, she said. One of the very big scams that has increased are impersonation scams. So consumers report losing money to scams where people will impersonate a bank or the government or a financial firm. So you'll see a lot of Amazon imposter scams, Social Security Administration, IRS, etc. And you'll get a call where... Someone pretends to be the government and say, you know, tells you that the IRS, they're an IRS agent and you're, you owe money to the government and it's urgent that you pay them now. Or, you know, Amazon, there's a suspicious charge on your Amazon account. These have increased quite a bit. We think, you know, texting is cheap. People are constantly on their phones. So that's likely the reason we've seen an uptick in these types of scams. And in addition, reports about tech scams spiked during covid because people were looking for alternative sources of income. Also, criminals know that cell phone users are very likely to open text messages, even more than emails. If people have access to their phones all the time and they're looking at text versus, you know, people aren't leaving voicemails these days or talking by phone as much. And we have, you can see oftentimes when something is a spam call, so people aren't picking up those calls as much. And it takes almost nothing to respond to a spam text, right? It's just a little flick of the wrist. Yes, exactly. There's something else very worrisome about bank copycat frauds. They are very, very profitable for criminals. The other number that just popped out at me is the median loss for this particular scam we're talking about is $3,000, which seems enormous to me. I mean, these these types of losses can be really large oftentimes. I mean, like you saw in, in this case that we're discussing today with Old Dogs Go to Hell and the nonprofit, if a scammer calls about a bank account, 
they can very easily with your authorization rip off your the proceeds of your entire bank account you know within minutes so or you know take your personal identity information easily on the phone so the median losses can get very high the crime is successful because the text messages seem so real and what struck me about the story is you know, everything was so believable. Uh, we've all gotten messages from our bank saying, you know, is this your transaction, something along those lines? And then when the, the call, they, they knew information about them. The call appeared to come from Bank of America. Have these crimes become more sophisticated lately? Yes. Um, scammers have gone to great lengths to look more authentic by know, knowing more about you. They may call and already know your bank account number or other personal details, which makes consumers trust them. They m may sound more legitimate, like in this case, because, you know, they already were calling from Bank of America, which the nonprofit used as their bank of choice. And they also used a lot of the same language and the procedures that Bank of America already uses. So they were sort of skilled in the trade, so to speak. So yes, it can be really confusing for consumers. Yeah, and it makes sense to me then that this crime works. Criminals copy each other, and now it's up 20-fold in the last two or three years. That's That just shows it must be very effective, right? Yes, definitely. You know, that's why consumers are reporting losing a lot of money to imposter scams. So how can you protect yourself from bank copycat fraud? You should never trust the caller ID. Those can be faked. So although it may say it's from, uh, your phone may say it's from Bank of America, the caller ID could definitely be faked. And most important, or one of the most important things is to check with the real agency person or company. Do not use the phone number that you're given by the alert, like the text message or the message that you get. You should look up the real number yourself. So use the, use, for example, the number on the back of your Bank of America debit card to call Bank of America and see if there was a suspicious charge on your account. What should banks be doing about this kind of crime? Well, I think that the banks are definitely working to educate consumers along with the FTC and they're engaging in consumer education. They also are tracking these types of fraud and working on analytics to reduce reduce these types of frauds. I should say we reached out to Bank of America about this story, but did not receive a response by the time this podcast was released. What should cell phone companies do about bank copycat fraud? Well, cell phone providers, that's interesting. I mean, in terms of robocalls, the FTC has been working very hard to reduce the amount of robocalls. We have filed a lot of actions in federal court. We've been going after telemarketers as well as VoIP providers who carry the calls in order to reduce these. And I think that cell phone providers have done some things. I mean, they do block certain spam calls, but more needs to be done because this has become a huge overwhelming problem that consumers are getting um, millions and millions of calls from scammers as well. A lot of, there are compliance procedures and calls are blocked, but you know, we need to do a better job of that. 
And I have to say, I mean, I get um, warnings now from my phone that are pretty effective that say this is a possible um, spam call or possible fraud. Um, right. I, I don't get those kinds of warnings on text messages. Is that the kind of thing that people are working on? Yeah, I think that it took a lot to get to the point where phone calls could be blocked and we are we have worked on robocalls and we're trying to reduce those as well through policy measures as well as an enforcement measures. So I think text messages is just going to be the next wave of things that that get dealt with technologically. I don't think that phone providers have gotten to the point where those are automatically blocked yet, but I think you'll see that very soon. I sure hope so. I know we all hate getting spam texts, but it won't be soon enough for Helen and her house full of elder dogs. We checked right before publishing this episode, and she's still dealing with the mess made by her criminal. The way that it stands is all of my accounts, because I had seven accounts prior. When I went in on that Saturday, we closed, technically closed all of those accounts and reopened another six Mm -hmm. so that I could move to keep everything safe. And right now with Bank of America, I have 13 accounts and seven of them are not usable. They're just sitting there frozen because of going through this. And so my main issue is if I continue to fight this, I can't access. I, I'm I've I'm literally I've been living off with my hands tied for let's say it's a, a mid-August now. So this episode for two months. And here comes a bit of irony. Extra security measures make it much harder for Helen to move money between her accounts now. I can call and I can move it. So I can't, because the accounts are in a deposit-only status, I I can call and I can move it, but I have to call the fraud department. Oh, my God. Exactly. Uh. Right. So I'm on the phone for two hours, you know, and it's just, it's just, it's it's a nightmare. It's been a complete and total nightmare. What has Helen learned from this experience? Honestly, I was completely and totally naive to how bad this has been and how much has been going on, you know. And and so this is happening all over the place. And that was one of the reasons that I went so public with it, you know, because if it can happen to to me and I'm I'm my no means am I like, you know, but I've I've dealt with my money very carefully and I've been very, very good about dotting my I's and crossing my T's. And if if they could do that to me, I could only imagine what they could do to other people as well. And if I didn't speak up about what had happened, other people could be very, very much the victims of this. And they may not have the same ability with social media to reach people the way that I could. And we're very grateful that you are because uh, I, I know for certain from where I sit and the people I talk to every week, yeah, this is happening all the time to tons of people yeah. and it's really hurting them. What do you, I mean, obviously you're passionate about going public with this, and I think that's great. What is it you really want people to know? Um, I, I think at this point, what I have learned and what I wish people also could learn as well or know now, and, and it's funny because since I've gone public, I cannot tell you how many messages I've gotten from people saying, Helen, I got a text from my bank and I didn't believe it now because of what you said. And sure enough, I went in and it wasn't real, is to understand that the people that are capable of doing these scams and doing that now are much their sophistication is matching the 
these banks level of sophistication. And so do not trust anything digitally anymore. Even to the phone calls, like just don't trust anything. Hang up, call them back, ask to speak to that exact person, like, or go in in person with anything that is result revolving around potential theft. You know, they will they will feed off and, and prey on your panic and fear to make it just go away. So don't trust anything at this point digitally with with your banks when they send you those texts. I certainly have learned that now. And it's smart to think about scams before one lands at your door. I think the most important thing now, and like I said, that was something that I learned was ask before it happens to you, ask your bank what their protocol looks like. Ask them straight up. Say if I if I ended up tomorrow getting a scam where someone was able to access my account and take thousands of dollars out, how would your bank handle that? What was that going to look like for me? Are you going to immediately credit me those funds back while you work on a, an investigation? Like, how does that look? Because, you know, those are things that, again, I just, I wouldn't ask that. I just want to know what my monthly fees are going to look like. And and ha- do I have access to, to move this? Or how can I, you know, if I need to cancel a card, can I order my checks online? But this is something now that people have to be able to understand that the way that the bank handles it to me now, it's so common that they should have a really good protocol in place that is human, the, the victim friendly, not the bank friendly, but the victim friendly. Banks should be human friendly, should be victim friendly, because Helen deserves, we all deserve, to be cared for the way old dogs go to Helen cares for its residents. If you have been targeted by a scam or fraud, you are not alone. Call the AARP Fraud Watch Network helpline at 877-908-3360. Their trained fraud specialists can provide you with free support and guidance on what to do next. Our email address at The Perfect Scam is theperfectscampodcast at aarp.org. And we want to hear from you. If you've been the victim of a scam or you know someone who has and you'd like us to tell their story, write to us or just send us some feedback. That address again is the perfect scam podcast at aarp.org. Thank you to our team of scam busters, associate producer Annalie Embry, researcher Sarah Binney, executive producer Julie Getz, and our audio engineer and sound designer Julio Gonzalez. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For AARP's The Perfect Scam, I'm Bob Sullivan. <laughs>